welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Hopefully it's a welcome back to the Proper Mental Podcast. Hopefully you've been here before. It feels like a bit of a welcome back for me. I've not put anything out. I've not done any recording for a few weeks. So it's absolutely, it's lovely to be here. It's lovely to be back behind the microphone and I hope you're doing well. This is episode 149 and my guest this week is James McMahon, who is a journalist and a writer and a podcaster who spent a long time working at the NME. He spent a long time as the editor of Kerrang! magazine and he's written for pretty much every major publication that's out there that you might have heard of and he's interviewed pretty much everyone in the music industry really. He's also the host of the James McMahon Music Podcast and his latest podcast is called Brainworms. and James has lived with OCD for most of his life and for a lot of that time he had no idea what it was or how to get help or where to go for help and that's pretty much what we chat about in some of this episode we talk about his own particular brand of mental illness how it showed up for him and how it's impacted his life over the years we chat about the OCD support group that he attends how he found it and what he gets from it the importance of community and relatability and and we chat about how mental illness impacts the people around us you know the people we love because ultimately we go through this stuff and people often go through it with us right we talk about trying to get well and then trying to stay there. We talk about empathy, particularly what it's like to have too much of it. And we talk a lot about the state of the world in general. It's something that James likes to talk about on his podcast. And I always enjoy listening to him talk about this stuff. I think our views are quite aligned, but it's not necessarily us moaning about the state of the world, more how I suppose other people moaning about the state of the world and the the aggression and the fighting and the chaos of social media and how that affects people's mental state. And that was really cool to kind of explore a little bit of that with James. We also talk about things like Twitter and Joe Rogan and all sorts of other stuff. I'm a big fan of James's podcasts. And because of that, I was really excited to chat to him for this episode. I think as a host, there's something that James does really well, probably better than anyone that I listen to. And that's that he's able to kind of, I suppose, ask people questions in an incredibly conversational way. So when you listen to James chat to someone, it does just feel like a chat, but they're talking about very specific stuff. And the way he kind of gets questions into the conversation is just, yeah, it's really cool. Everything's really flowy, really laid back, and he's just wonderful at it. It's such a wonderful thing to listen to. And for me, that's like the ideal. That's what I really try and do with this. And sometimes it really works, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it feels a bit more question and answer and a bit more clunky. But I was really excited to chat to James because I knew that's kind of how he operated. So I wanted to see if we were going to do that today. And that's kind of exactly what we do. As soon as he logged on, we started chatting and it just kind of went and it goes everywhere. And uh, yeah, it was really cool to be a part of. When James was writing for the NME, that was kind of my era of buying the NME every single week. It was like my Bible is how I found out about bands and albums and books and all sorts of stuff. So kind of reading his work then and listening to his podcasts. It was really cool to get him on the show. In the episode notes, there's links where you can find him on social media, links to his Substack more information about his podcast go and check it out see what he's up to all of it is highly recommended and depending on when you're listening to this you might have already watched it if you're a member of the patreon community because it's been up on there since we recorded it so every time i speak to someone 
I take the video of that and I throw it up on Patreon and people can watch it straight away. I also keep people updated on there on what I'm up to, who I've got coming up, what things are happening, what things aren't happening. And I'm just trying to create a just a community around the show of people who are into the show, of people who are passionate about mental health and just a way of like trying to connect everyone, I suppose. It's £5 a month and it also helps me to keep the podcast independent, leave me with control over it. I can keep it ad-free, all those sorts of stuff that I really want to do. And if that sounds like something you want to be a part of, if you'd like to support the show in that way, there's a link in the episode notes. You can sign up. We'd love to have you join us. Another way you can support the show for free is to leave a review on iTunes. Leave me five stars on Spotify. That's also very much appreciated. This is episode 149 of the Proper Mental Podcast with James McMahon. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. Uh, so here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast, and my guest this week is Mr. James McMahon. How are you, mate? Uh, yeah, I'm all right. I, with this being a podcast about mental health, I don't know whether I should be totally honest and say that everything is a shit show right now, or should I just kind of engage in pleasantries and say everything's great? Yeah. Which, which <laughs> would you prefer? Well, I prefer whatever kind of makes you more comfortable saying, mate, to be honest. Uh, I'll go with it's... Or things are all right. Things could be worse. I think that's a good approach to take to. Uh, I think that's a good approach to take to, uh, to 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 when you have a complicated brain is to not catastrophize and say uh, things could be worse because they 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 can be worse. They can always be worse. Yeah, and I think particularly sometimes when they have been worse. Like I find sometimes find comfort in the fact that things have been worse, but they're not that bad now. <laughs> you know, like I've kind of been there, like this is okay compared to how it's been type of scenario. Yeah, the one I struggle with is when people say, uh, when people say someone always has it worse. Mm. And I always think, well, why would that make me feel better? That, that someone is having it worse than I am right now. That doesn't make me feel better. Like fundamentally, I care about people and I don't want people to be suffering. So I always kind of find that kind of comparison a bit weird. But uh, I do think that perspective is good if you can kind of get yourself to that. There's been loads of times in my life where I've just been like, this is it. I can't, I, I can't do it anymore. This is too much. And then when I remember those times, I go, oh, yeah, but all that stuff happened afterwards. You you, you enjoyed that. You had you had a good time after that, like things went well in your life and you kind of go, okay, well, if I hadn't have navigated that difficult bit, then, then that would have been it. You know what I mean? I would have missed out on all this stuff. So yeah, yeah perspective, if you can get to, unfortunately, I think that mental illness works really hard to remove any idea perspective from you. Mate, when you're in it, you're in it. Yeah. Very, very much so. Right. Like yeah. it can be so hard. It, it, it took me a long time to learn. Um, almost that type of perspective it's almost like you have to when you're in it and you're trying to use that perspective it's almost like gaslighting yourself because you don't honestly i i say i'm not i said you're then i don't mean to say you're me my experience um yeah sometimes i say that to remind myself and i don't necessarily believe it but i have to trust that there's a part of my brain that's telling me the truth if that makes any sort of sense at all yeah i think sometimes with ocd though uh, you know, I don't know, I, I don't know about specifically to your life experiences, but there is something with OCD where 
you almost have to learn to like not always trust your brain. It's it's kind of it's almost like um, it's almost like you're a private detective or something, and you have to sort of assess the situation you're in and like ask yourself the question: Does this feel like OCD? You know, because sometimes OCD can feel so real, and I feel like over the years I have kind of learned a system of identification. You know, it's almost like I've sort of it's almost like that, that old video game LA Noir. You sort of sat there and you're like, are they are they are they pulling a face? Is my OCD pulling a face? Is this OCD? And it's normally things like if a thought is urgent, or if I feel clammy, or if I feel a sense of overwhelming irrational doom then i can go okay well this is this is probably ocd we, this is a phrase that people with ocd say to themselves if it feels like ocd it probably is but i think it's 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 a, it's a weird one kind of navigating your life when you know you can't always trust on your brain i think that's the most exa exhausting part of it really yeah yeah so it's kind of like um yeah i can't it's almost like inception right so like the the there's like layers within layers of what's what's real and what's not and what's what's ocd and what isn't and then is that ocd or is not and yeah i that sounds like yeah that sounds as horrendous as you know as i'm sure it is well i just think that i mean when i had my first you know i saw it was probably more of a gradual um it was more of a sort of an incline really than I maybe thought it was at one point in my life. But, you know, when I first had a thought that derailed me, I was 19 and it genuinely was a, what is happening to me? Like, what, what is this? There was like a day before and there was a day after when I look back, I think, okay, well actually some of the seeds had been sown some years before that. And actually some of those thoughts were, you know, they were OCD or they were getting there. But, um, it is that, that thing of you don't think... There was certainly a point in my life where I thought, oh, well, I can trust my brain. My brain is my brain's the thing that's driving everything. I didn't think that my brain was something that would work against me, you know. So that's, uh, that's a sort of strange realisation. And I think it's sometimes hard for other people to understand. It's, it's really weird. I listen to Joe Rogan a fair bit. I always feel like I have to preface that with, you know but I believe in vaccines. But <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are things there are things I really enjoy about that show and uh, I've been listening for a long time. But it's infuriating. It's infuriating hearing him talk about mental illness because it's like he just can't get it. It's like, oh, well, this can just be fixed with like a walk, you know, mm. to the extent that you have this guy, um, oh, what's his name? Is his name Howie Gelb? Howie Gelb, the comedian. Very famous. I'm going to... I'm going to have to check that, actually, because mm. I just need to check that Howie Gelb isn't an alt-country musician. Howie Mandel, that's it. Howie Gelb is an alt-country musician. Howie Mandel, he does, like, uh, America's, America's Got Talent or whatever, but he's a sort of legendary US comedian, and he has OCD. And he, it was for a long time... He was for a long time almost like the most prominent person I knew with OCD. And so when he went on Rogan and they were talking about their comedy careers and it was... You know, I was excited to to listen to it, but it was infuriating hearing Rogan kind of counter him, his guests talking about OCD with, uh, well, you know, it's about the brain being strong, and it's like, no, no, Joe, sometimes sometimes people's brains just don't work like other people's brains, you know. So that's a it's a weird one. I I don't even blame him for that. I just think that 
I found it over the years, conversations with my parents or, you know, employers or, or friends, you know, any anyone whose brain doesn't work in the way that mine does or not work in the way that my brain does. Uh, it's a hard thing to kind of get your head around. Yeah, very much so. I think you see that a lot, particularly in um, podcasts with, um, I'm very similar to you. Like I quite like Rogan. I don't really have a problem with him. I, you know, I think yeah. all his episodes could be about an hour shorter, but other than that, he's <laughs> he's all right. And it, um, It's funny, actually, that recently I've thought they could be about an hour longer. I really? Like, yeah. Yeah, I definitely feel like he's, uh, he's managing the uh, comedy club and his podcast and one of them is winning out at the moment. You know? there's, <laughs> yeah. there's definitely, there's, there's definitely about with about an hour to go. You can definitely sort of tell he's thinking, right? How can I get? How can I wrap this up? When I, I need I, to I didn't be somewhere. Think, yeah. yeah, he's like, oh, I've only got half an hour left, and I haven't even talked about DMT yet. Oh, how am I gonna? <laughs> how am I gonna squeeze it in? But um, yeah. yeah, there there is that kind of like that narrative though that, and you, yeah, a lot of podcasts, mostly by um, very rich men who wear tight black t-shirts and talk about mindset. And, you know, there's there's so many things that are very, very good for maintaining good mental well-being, and they often have very little to do with mental illness. And it's, it's that, that seems to be that gap that people fall down where people don't quite understand that, you know, you can have as many ice baths as you as you want but a lot of people who are severely mentally ill probably aren't safe to be around water you know like that's kind of that's <laughs> yeah. how that, people used to say to me if you try going for a run i was like i can't i'm not safe to be around traffic you know like it's just that simple it's interesting um, it is interesting though because i you know when i when i've been really ill which has been more in recent years than at any point in my life it hasn't been a great half decade but you know here we are scrapping and um you know, I put on a lot of weight, like I became very sedentary, not all my fault, you know, a pandemic did happen in the middle of it, but, you know, it's interesting. I think it's something that Rogan doesn't really get any credit for, uh, in the sense that him constantly saying, just, just move a bit, you know, just, just get off your ass. You've got to get outside. You've got to, you've got to fight, you know, I actually think that's a really important component into, in talking about mental health. Um, which is almost sort of kind of fallen a little bit out of favour. I think my frustration with him is it just he, it's almost like empathetically he can't understand that other people's brains work in a particular way and certain illnesses exist and we've, you know, they've existed for a long time and we've done, clever people have done the work trying to, you know, understand what those people need or like how people's thoughts work against them. But actually that thing of, actually that thing of like, you know, getting getting out. You yeah. know, it's, it's. I mean, it sounds very. It sounds really simple, right? But that's actually almost the opposite of what I think a lot of mental health discourse has become, which is no, you need to feel. You know, and I think sometimes actually not feeling, doing is actually is actually really helpful for people. I mean, of course, it's just nuanced to all of this, isn't there? But yeah, I, yeah. I sort of feel a bit like um, you know my. I'm from Yorkshire, and I don't want to sort of characterise Yorkshire as something it isn't, but it's certainly like the discourse about mental health didn't exist when I was first having the first having the problems that I have, or when I was growing up. But um, but a certain kind of grit did, you know. There was a certain sense of like not feeling, you know, it was instilled by my parents really. A certain sort of a certain sort of message of not feeling sorry for yourself. And I do feel like sometimes for all of the therapy I've had or all of the support groups that I've been part of or anything that I have turned to to try and help me with 
you know, my very obvious problems with OCD. Um, sort of tending to uh, sort of um, uh, Sean Connery then. I, I, there was a little bit of a sort of lisp when I said OCD. It sounded like I was James Bond. Uh, I think that actually kind of having that foundation of, well, life's really shit and you've got to, you've got to work hard and you've got to try. I actually think that that, whilst that isn't kind of like a, an answer to someone who is having mental health problems, mental, uh, mental illness, I actually think that that is part of the mix. That is part of the recovery mix. It's weird, and I'm not even sure I would have said that at a certain point. Do you know the singer John Grant? Mm, I do, yeah. Yeah, I interviewed John Grant once, and it was a really long conversation, and he was talking about his problems with mental illness. And he was saying this thing about, it's so frustrating when you get to the point where you realise that your mum was kind of right about a lot of things. So, you know, when you're a kid and you're like, this is really hard and I'm very sad and... You know, your mum says you need to get outside. That's the last thing you want to hear, right? Because you don't feel, when you're in it, you don't feel like that's even possible. But actually, it does help. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, I find exercise at the moment is is really helpful. You know, it's as helpful as sertraline or therapy or, you know, and I'm not sure I would have said that at one point, you know. So I just think that... It's almost like you know the more the more sort of uh, the more we talk about mental illness, the more we talk about mental health, the more the stigma is broken, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I do think that you know we shouldn't lose we shouldn't lose some of that sort of those sort of that stoicism really. I think that stuff's a, a useful component in in treatment. Mm, yeah, very much. There's kind of like this. I don't know. We talk a lot in the in the mental health sphere or whatever you want to call it, like about compassion. And we think that compassion has to be, um, it's become where everything has to be really nice and really fluffy and really light and take care of yourself and take it easy. And all those things are true and important, but sometimes compassion, compassion is like, you know, back in yourself and doing something for yourself and doing something that, you know, compassion can let people off the hook. And sometimes you do have to take a little bit of a bit of control and take a bit of action and get out when you don't want to get out and do these things. But it's so hard to talk about because we mainly talk on, you know, social media and limited characters. And you say to someone, well, you know, have you thought about maybe trying to take a bit of control of this and get outside because exercise good. And then of course you're met with, you know, the way I can't believe you said that it's all about compassion and love. And so it just, exactly what you're saying it's kind of lost in the in the middle i had a therapist once this just occurred to me many many years ago and i was kind of on his couch moaning about something and he said to me it sounds a little bit like you've got a bit of a a, a victim mindset there and at the time my ego was like mortally offended like inside i was like how dare you i'm depressed don't you know and then i went off and um like thought about it for a week and i thought you know what i fucking am you know i am but like all that stuff i was talking about has got nothing to do with what's wrong with me um and i need to kind of like take some fucking action of so i don't know what that action is but i need to do it and i went back and, and we talked about it again in the, in the session and it was really interesting because he was like i shouldn't have phrased it like that oh that was unprofessional i'm really sorry and i was like dude that's what i needed to fucking hear that week because i was being in that mindset and it wasn't serving me at all it's um yeah. yeah that's yeah that's really um i think that therapists that say things that make us bristle are often the best therapists like don't get me wrong i've had some 
appalling therapists over the years who uh, who sometimes haven't done me very 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 much good at all, and in in many ways I think have sort of hindered a a recovery. But I think that. I think the dynamics have changed loads with patients and therapists. Actually, I mean, this is all kind of anecdotal. This isn't this isn't based on any kind of hard and fast research. But it's strange. I've become a little bit skeptical of therapy in many ways because I do feel like it has changed over the period of time that I've been having therapists. Like, it feels quite transactional now, and that, there's almost part of me which is slightly suspicious of, uh, of of therapy in a sense. It's sort of strange that this is a, a sort of a, an economic transaction that we get into where actually the benefit isn't actually really to make you feel better, but to kind of stay within, stay within that um, sort of therapist patient relationship. You know, I have had therapists before who've I've said to them, I feel like we're going around in circles here and maybe I need to try this or maybe I need to try something else. And they sort of said, well, I don't really think that would work for you. And it's been hard to hear that because I've been like, well, yeah, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Because I could be here another year, and that's a load of money in your pocket. Like, I would like there to be an exit point of this relationship at some point. I would like to think I didn't need this. Um, whereas I feel like kind of earlier on, when I was having a lot of therapy, it was more about, I'm going to tell you some home truths. This is the therapist. I'm going to tell you some things that might be hard to hear. You know, I, I, I had dinner with a friend of mine who has OCD last night, went to our OCD support group and went for dinner afterwards. And she said something to me, which I won't repeat because, you know, it's my thing. But she said something to me and she was quite apologetic. And she said it and afterwards she said it, she was like, that sounded really harsh. But it really was something I needed to hear, you know. And I just think that that's, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I, I I just think that sometimes I'm quite frustrated with the whole discourse about mental health and mental illness at the moment, really. I mean, mainly that the discourse is about mental health and not about mental illness. I feel like people who have an illness are, you know, for all of the sort of stigma breakings, they're still, you know, it's still really not about us, really. There's, there's a lot that's about the wooliness of you need to look after yourself, you need to, you know go for a nice walk and all this sort of stuff and there's not enough actually that confronts the ugliness of mental illness but I do feel like there's a sort of uh, I don't sort of phrase this I do feel there is a sort of I don't think I don't think we should be treating people who are who are mentally ill as weak you know firstly because the trials and tribulations of being mentally ill are ridiculous i mean i i'm quite proud of certain things that i've done in my life and I, but i really think that actually if people knew what was going on when i had done the things that i'd done i i would like to think that they would have a degree of admiration for me because mm. it just feel like i've done some of it with a you know with with you know with a broken leg or you know sort of an unseen disability but also, I just think that sometimes sort of saying to people, oh, you poor thing, which sometimes you need to hear, right? You know, it's a bit of sort of carrot and stick, but sometimes you need to, sometimes you need to be told to sort yourself out, you know? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think probably for me, I'm probably thinking like, I would need other people to tell me to sort myself out more and I would need more of the are you poor thing from myself. 
Do you know what I mean? Like I tend to find like outside, I'm very lucky. I have a, a, a support system. I have my wife, right? And I can talk to Kim about all this sort of stuff. And she's very like caring and compassionate towards me and stuff like that. And then I find I'm the nasty one to me. <laughs> like I, the, the stigma's more internalized rather than um, not so much these days. I've put a lot of work into that not being the case, you know. But um, yeah, I, the the niceness for me would probably need to come from, from me, and I could do with some of the nice people outside of me are the ones saying, "Come on, pull your finger out, sunshine. Let's uh, let's fight for this." Yeah, interesting. I think I might actually go the other way Ooh. on mine. <laughs> I I just I, I guess my thing is I have these moments I'm sort of, sort of coming out of one really I'm sort of coming out of this I think today last couple of days but I've had a couple of weeks of feeling really sorry for myself and I think justifiably but what's it, what's it do you know what's it do like you don't get anything from that you know you don't it's not helpful in any way and I just think it's like world's really cruff, cruff, I've sort of rammed two words together there. The world's really cruel and tough, you know, it's, uh, and that's shit. I wish I wasn't away, you know, I wish it was the future that the Jetsons promised and, you know, everything was peace and love. I, you know, I, I wish that was the case, but it's not the case. So, you know, what are you going to do? Mm. If you, I, I almost feel like people who have complicated brains have to, find a way to be their biggest champions really because the world's just gonna crush you if you don't mm. but I, I, I wouldn't have always i wouldn't have always thought this stuff you know and I, and I might not think this stuff again but this is a little bit where i'm at at the moment you know yeah do you would you say that you you feel that um that cruelness of the world are you like really in tune to that james do you like really feel that because some people don't do they and i do think that something that people who have struggled with with their mental health or with mental illness or whatever we want to call it, they do have that thing where they really feel deeply about stuff and really take it on board. Because I know some people who just couldn't, couldn't give a shit. They wouldn't acknowledge the world was cruel and they wouldn't feel like it was. And, you know, and like sometimes it all just seems a bit too much for me, <laughs> you know, like, uh, yeah, it's a, fu a funny space. It, it, would you like consider, do you feel like that? Do you feel deeply... I feel, well, I mean, I definitely feel deeply, but I think that I had a problem for a long time in seeing the world as I wanted it to be rather than actually how it was. And I think that that wasn't conducive to me looking after myself or, I mean, you know, I've spent two decades in the music industry, which is a, you know, it's a dystopian hellhole for a lot, you know, a lot of it is a very cruel place to to work and exist and I think there was all there was an idealistic part of me which is probably still there you know there was an idealistic part of me that was like oh, I should be like this it should be different to this but actually I feel like accepting I mean there'd been books and films made long before I got into the music industry that revealed that it was a you know that it was <laughs> that it was a savage place you know what I mean it wasn't like no one it wasn't like no one told me so but i also think that i do you know we do a lot of work in therapy don't we with like well you know when you're having cbt and a lot of it's about kind of core values and i definitely think that i was a going way back like i was a little kid that really did care about you know people and us as a species and almost like how we kind of coexisted with each other i i thought about all those things from being really young 
you know, I always kind of think when people talk about politics, I always think, well, you know, I'm on the left and everything, but I'm kind of my politics, my politics is Sesame Street, you know, it's like, that's how I kind of see the world, like people from people who all shapes, sizes, all the differences that humans can possess who find a way to live in harmony, you know, um, even even the guy living in the bin, you know, we find a way to sort of make it work. And I guess that like, I don't really feel like that's what the world is right now and hasn't been for a while. And I find that hard. I've almost had to sort of try to become more individualistic in my worldview for my own kind of mental, my own kind of like mental preservation, really. I mean, I things that happen in the world, I can, you know, I will say to my wife, how do you feel about? blah 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 and she'd be like what relevance does this have to you and me right now so and i and i find it almost i find it almost impossible to think how can you not think about this at this moment in time like how can i don't know it, it, it's not normally natural disasters or something but it's some sort of like ill in the world that can be some kind of distance away from us at that moment um and I do think in a weird way I've had to try to be more realistic in actually for my own sanity. Mm. I'm always really interested in how that how that affects like creative people, people who create anything. It doesn't really matter what it is. And like, you know, that whole question around, you know, do you have to suffer for your art or does the fact that you can create mean you're more susceptible to feeling that way? if that makes sense. You know, a guest once said to me that the a guy called Josh Connolly, and he said to me, my biggest strength is my ability to think deeply. And my biggest weakness is my ability to think deeply. And that kind of juxtaposition of you can't have one without the other. That always kind of like fascinates me, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I've got a real problem with empathy at the moment. <laughs> me and my friend Dana, we've, we're doing a podcast at the moment called Brainworms, and we joke about it. And it's like loosely, I mean, it's, loosely about how the internet is making us all mental and we say this almost every week that you know excess empathy is almost like a disability because it's almost like you can be as empathetic as you know you can be the most empathetic person in the world but if other people don't have that in their locker then it is almost like a disability you know you are sort of constantly running into yeah situations where you are trying to understand someone who doesn't who, who doesn't want to be understood and they're not trying to understand anyone else you know and that's not why you do that's not why you're empathetic you are you just you are or you aren't i think but i guess that like for me this era is really difficult to i found this era the most difficult i think of any point in my life not that i've been the most unwell of any point in my life but i think that it is if you are working kind of in media or kind of creative spaces or I think that people are very, very sensitive. I think that a lot of the ideology, I don't want to be that guy, right? I don't want to be that guy. I'm not going to be that guy. That's like all of this woke shit because woke is such a divisive term. And I don't mean it in the sense of, um, the US Republican Party and the things that they are saying and doing about gay people. I don't mean that at all because they're the very opposite of my politics. But there is a certain rigidity, I think, within media and cultural spaces right now 
that is very difficult to express yourself because there is a lot of fear and in a weird way it's, there's an article i think it's by jonathan height uh the the social scientist but it, it's basically about this idea that a lot of the ideas of wokeness quote-unquote wokeness going with what i think rather what i think it is as opposed to that kind of grifter right-wing view of it is that it's almost kind of anti-cbt in lots of ways you know it's like there's a lot of people in the world who've been told that things that they are almost like their identity is almost like more important than looking outside of themselves like there's a lot about it that actually it's almost like that my experiences of having ocd and trying to recover from ocd or live with it i'm not sure how much i totally buy into the idea of be, being fixed but I'm, I'm not sure ocd is ever going to go i just think that i need to keep bashing it down more and more into the background but a lot of the ideas that we talk about within sort of social justice movements and such like i actually think contradict my own treatment and i do know a lot of other people who you know have been through the same process feel the same there's this whole thing with ocd where you you have to learn you kind of can't change the world for your own mental well-being and that's actually not what we are saying within social justice movements which is almost like the world should change for us and it's that's sort of interesting to me and i'm not sure i almost kind of see that in action and go is this good for you this is me to someone else because it isn't good for me so mm. i kind of find that hard but obviously you know it's, it's just an incredibly charged time where for all of the connectivity we have and all of the opportunities that we have to communicate with each other, it's not a great time for discourse, really. Mm. So, you know, it's that thing of almost like, well, how much are you going to get on the, on the, on the treadmill and kind of fight this pointless fight, or how much are you going to try and navigate your way through it and keep your own sanity? But I do find that really difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's just a mess, really, isn't it? It's all just a, <laughs> it's just a yeah. mess. It's like you know, oh yeah, I I just think there's never been an example in the history of social media where two people have been having a fight in the comments on Facebook and someone's gone, ah, oh, you know what? Yeah, you're right there. I'm gonna go away and think about the point I just defended for twenty minutes. It's just a, a nonsense. But I never Look, like. I, I think I think a bit of the problem is is that I do do that. Like I do genuine people say things to me all the time and I go and I think about it, you know, I think about everything. I mean, it's like my brain is turned up. It's just turned up too loud all the time. Like when people criticize me or they disagree with a, a comment or they disagree with my perspective on something or, you know, it never just, it never just washes over me. I mean, it's, it's hard. I need, I, I'm getting there. I'm getting closer than I ever have been, but I always, I always think about it, and and I'm not even saying that in a bit of a sort of worries me way. Mm. I'm actually saying, kind of like I definitely feel proud of myself that I can have that, that I can not think I'm right all of the time. But um, again, it's almost that empathy thing. It's like, well, if you've got that, but someone else hasn't got that, then I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's a real strange, strange um. Yeah, it's all just a mess, mate. Isn't it? Do you? A... Um, I know this is audio, but do you mind if I put my light on this end? Because yeah, yeah, I, I just realised I'm sat in darkness. Yeah, not a not a problem. 
Another problem at all. Yeah. It's I always think like, I don't know, with the social media stuff, I think one, we're just not designed to be connected with that many people, right? We're designed to kind of be in, you know, small tribes, knocking around, not really doing very much. And instead, like we've got 3,000 friends on Facebook or whatever, and that's just not not good for us. And it's not nice. People don't like to admit that, you know, there can be lots of different shit things and good things that can all coexist at the same time. And just because one thing is shit, it doesn't mean the other thing isn't shit or is shitter or, you know, everything's all just going on at once and it doesn't really matter how much we argue about it. It's still going to, still going to go on. But Do you ever, uh, are you on the mental health, this hell, H-E-L-L, the mental health substack? No, no, I'm not, no. Man, you'd love it. I don't know, it's probably the wrong way to phrase it, love it, but it's one of my favourite, uh, I, I can't get the I can't get the writer's name right, I'll just fudge it and it'll be offensive and I'll upset everyone, but they're amazing. They're this trans person in New York that writes about, uh, almost, writes almost about like why we're so unhappy, but in quite kind of contrary ways. Like, the, the ideas that they present are definitely challenging, you know. But they, they write a lot about... They write a lot about social media, but in, like, just a really... And connectivity and the internet and mm. kind of what it's doing to us. But just, it's amazing. It's one of the one of the few substacks that I subscribe to at the moment just because I'm not drowning in the dollar. But uh, it's, it's fantastic. I can't yeah. recommend that highly enough. I just think their take on... Mental health is is amazing. Oh mate, yeah, I'll check it out. Check it out for sure. It's a lot, you know. I suppose it's handy, isn't it? One thing that's handy about the internet and stuff is that we can, if you have an interest too, you can, you know, get out of your own echo chamber and listen to other people. And if you so wish, like you know, it's quite handy have seeing other people's views. I think that's half the problem, isn't it? Is that we all surround ourselves by people saying all exactly the same stuff, and they all back up our biases. And then like one person says something else, and it's that mob mentality of that. That's not what I said, and it's all just a. A mess. I find the strangest thing about it for me is that I don't see it represented any, and it's probably why it doesn't really bother me. Um, like Twitter for me is like when you drive past a car crash and you tell yourself, don't look, don't look, don't look. And then at the last minute you look yeah. and think, oh, I wish I hadn't. Um, I don't really see any of that represented in my day-to-day life. Do you know what I mean? Like I live um, like over the water from Liverpool, um, you know, and I, I can go I don't know. I just don't, I don't see these debates. I don't see all the stuff that people are so angry about. I don't see it in my local community. I don't come across it. I don't see, you know, it just doesn't exist for me. So it's almost, it's, I find it very strange. I think maybe that's why it doesn't bother me. Maybe if I lived somewhere with more going on and more, you know, built up, not that I'm rural in the middle of nowhere, but I just, you know, no one where I live, like fucking cares. I don't know anyone who's talking about the same stuff everyone's arguing about on Twitter. I just don't see it. It's just not there. Yeah. And I do, I mean, I'm from South Yorkshire and I've been going home quite a lot recently. And, you know, if I talk to people in the village, I mean, I really yearn for that, though. Like, I'm, I'm in a bit of a pickle, really. My, my wife is, like, you know, a very successful music industry person. And I'm definitely at a crossroads of, like, what I am doing professionally. And I have been for, for a while. I really don't really know where I'm at. And I really yearn for the life that I knew when I was growing up and the life that I was, you know, fairly desperate to escape at the time. But I really think that being around 
I don't want to say real people. We're all real people. I, but I really think being... I, th I, would re I really crave being around people who see or care about things that are much closer to their own orbit. I, I think that that would be really good for me, but fortunately I am trapped in the gilded cage of my marriage with the woman that I adore and that I will always love and want to be next to. But there's definitely... I, I'd really like to get out of media spaces now, but we'll see what the future... I mean, you just said that, and I mean, admittedly in my head, I, I could hear like the Lars playing in the background, and um, you know, sort of the the Mersey, the, the Mersey glistening on a on a summer's day, and I'm sure it's not always like that. But in my head, I'm like, ah, I'd really like that. But yeah, I we'll mean, see. you know, it's sometimes like that. It's sometimes <laughs> like that. That um, that you know, that place you talk about there that you wanted to escape from would that would have been around when you were 19 and you know ocd was firing up for you and all that sort of stuff was it mate? no i mean i had a i definitely had a i definitely had a tough upbringing with a lot of stuff that was going on around me i mean you know there's so many mysteries about ocd um i think it's i think it's so misunderstood i mean obviously it's my team so i'm kind of you know probably there's some biases there because of that but I, I i really do think the more i dug into other mental illnesses i really think ocd is just befuddling and and and, and to clever people who you know their jobs are to try and understand more about it but you know my belief and again this isn't really based on anything other than anecdotal uh you know what what my friends with ocd say in my own experiences is that i think that I think it's biological. I think you are either susceptible to it or you're not. I think that's probably hereditary. I can see traits in you know family members that uh, are older than me, and I think that it's unlocked by maybe what we would call trauma. So I think that there was there were a series of traumatic events when I was growing up that probably unlocked what was there, and. But I think my family, in lots of ways, did really well at kind of sort of like protecting me from a lot. You know, like I didn't, I'm not sure I really, until I got to university when I was 18, I'm not sure I really realised how dinted up my head was and that I had this looming problem coming. You know, I when I think about my teenage years, for everything that was kind of going on in the background, I... I remember him being really happy in lots of ways. You know, there was some pretty bad bullying at school at a certain point, and like I say, the the other things that I'm sort of alluding to. But actually, you know, when I think about it, I'm like, yeah, you had a really good time running around with your mates, you know, kind of getting into grunge and Britpop and, you know, being silly teenagers. And actually, when I left my hometown... To go to university, I was full of a lot of, you know, I, I went in the right, I went in the right place. But I just, when I got there, I was like, very quickly, I was like, what on earth is happening to my brain? And, um, you know, that was difficult, you know, that was, you know, but again, I've sort of got a, there's lots of times when I think about, I, mean, I started working at the NME when I was like, I went to staff when I was like 25. And I think that like 20 no, 26, I think I was, 25, 26, can't remember. 
and like when I was 28, I was really unwell, but I still sort of didn't know what was happening. And I think there was a lot of conversations. I remember with my mum, you know, my mum, I'm very close to where she was like, well, you can't give up. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep going. You can, you can do this, James, you can do this, you know, kind of conversations like when me in the office at like, you know, one in the morning where I can't get out of the office without touching desks a certain amount of times and I'm going around the office and I'm touching desks and then I'm kind of forgetting how many times I've touched them and I'm just in this, you know, sort of maelstrom of madness. And she was like, you can't give up, you can't give up, you know. And I think a lot of that was because I've worked so kind of hard to get there. But there's a bit in my head where I'm a bit like, maybe if I'd just, maybe if I'd just really, maybe if I'd, maybe I should have given up at one point. Maybe I should have given up and I could have got fixed. It's quite, you know, one of my best friends with OCD, she got diagnosed at like 24. And like, it was a nightmare, kind of everything came to a point and then she got the help and she got diagnosed and... You know, she still sort of combats it now, but like, she 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 started the process of getting well, and and I didn't till a lot later than that. Um, so yeah, it's almost that thing. It almost sort of slightly contradicts a bit that I'm sort of was saying earlier on about kind of grit and always trying to push yourself forward and always kind of be driven forward. Where actually, I think there sometimes needs to be a place to be ill, but you know, hindsight twenty twenty and all that. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of the time as well when like these things happen is that we just don't know what's happening. Like, it's very easy when you know what's, when you've got a name for it and you've got words to describe it and you can actually have a conversation about it if you choose to. Um, that's very, very different to when it's happening and you don't know what's happening and you don't know what to do about it. And like my, my own experience, my main priority was making sure no one fucking found out about it. Oh, that was kind you. of, that, yeah, that was the yeah. only, that was my priority. I wasn't thinking about getting help or getting fixed. I was just, let's just keep the fucking lid on for long enough and I'll figure it out later. I kind of like, I didn't want to figure it out. I just kind of like, I, you know, just thought it'll stop or I'll find an answer or something will happen, but just keep it to yourself is the, is the priority. So like, yeah, if you don't know what something is and you don't know how to talk about it, how are you supposed to ask for help or tell someone what it is? Or, you know, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, yeah, when you're in it, you got, you don't have the words, right? Well, I mean, just asking for help just wasn't part of the currency of anything I knew anyway, you know, but it's just that thing of like, almost, you know, there's been times in my life where my, my obsessions, you know, the, the obsessions that lead to the rituals with my OCD have come from an obsession about whether people think that I am quote unquote mental, you know, that was like the biggest, that was the most distressing thing for a long time. Like, you know, I had a, I had a period when I was at university when I was 19, when I was absolutely obsessed that I was HIV positive. And there was no evidence for this. There was no, I just, I just, the fact that I couldn't a hundred percent authoritatively say that I wasn't HIV positive sent me insane. So I would like go for tests and I'd get the results and I'd be negative, but that's not enough. Like my head wanted it to be completely definitive. So, you know, when I would say to the, person that gave me my results well how accurate is this and they'd say 99.99999 percent or what, what have you and i'd be like so there's a chance then you know it wasn't ever enough right and i never really got the right treatment there and then but i, d I did go on some ssris that did did null it did nullify that obsession to the point i could move on and get on with different things in my life but 
for years after my obsession was oh well the people who saw that mania what will they think you know what do they think of me do they think i'm mental um there was a guy i mean there was I worked, when i went to kerrang there was a guy once in the office and he, i remember him saying to me i remember saying to him one day and i'd known him for a very long time and i remember saying to him are the issues in you know as in the other magazine other magazines in and i remember him saying to me don't you have enough issues and it was just <laughs> it was just like oh my god everyone knows everyone knows everything i think about everything knows yeah, i mean this is years before i ever sort of really knew what was happening it was ocd but it was like they could see into my brain you know it was like they could see what a mess i was they could see that I had these distressing thoughts that I didn't understand why I was having these distressing thoughts. So actually, you know, I get quite frustrated about, you know, I do think in lots of ways the taboo of talking about mental health is over. I don't think the taboo of talking about mental illness is even really, we haven't even started really trying to, you know, kind of break the taboos of that really. But I, for all of my frustrations that sometimes there is a lot of waffle in mental health discourse, the fact that I don't feel, or people like, me and you don't feel like the fact that we're talk the fact that we're talking on a podcast called proper mental it says says something about progress i believe um because the the, the suffering in silence was was the, the worst thing mm. yeah it really is i mean you know my show's called that because that's that's how I, my only way of describing what was happening to me i thought i was going proper mental and one of the <laughs> you know those are the only words i had right and the one of the things that comes up probably more than anything on the people that I speak to is people say, I didn't say anything because I was scared I was going to get sections, you know? And that certainly was my fault. I was like, my wife's going to leave me. Um, they're going to take my kids off me. I don't know who what that was, who was going to take my kids off me. Um, I'm going to lose my business and I'm going to get sections. And, you know, now I've spoke to people who are involved in the sectioning process or have been sectioned. And it's really hard to get sectioned. It's not, you know, it's not like peep show where they just like start sectioning each other for, you know, to steal a pub. It's really, really hard. But that's such a common fear, isn't it? If like people find out what's going through my head, then all these things are, are going to are going to happen um I think, I think there's definitely a degree of shame with me as well though because you know my my i mean i guess the other sort of the the, the context of this as well i'm probably makes a bit more sense really when i'm talking about my mum and that kind of grit you know is that she was quite she would maybe deny this actually but i i always thought that there was a certain there was a bit of extra stigma in my family about mental illness because my granddad had been mentally ill like post post war, um, you know, he'd come back. You know, my grandma always says, you know, he went to war one man and came back another. You know, and I definitely, my mum grew up with it. I mean, he was a great guy, right? You know, God God bless his soul. Like, but she grew up around a very ill dad. You know, so and I don't think that obviously this is like the sixties, right? So. You know, as we all know, anyone who likes horror movies know that the further back you go, the more cruel a lot of the uh, treatments were. And so I think that she was quite, you know, we it was a bit like we weren't kind of trusting of mental health services because it was almost like she'd seen what happened to her dad. So that was, and I don't even think she was totally wrong about that, really. You know, I don't think... I think a bit of sort of reticence rather than me running, kicking and screaming in there, you know, wasn't, wasn't the worst thing in the world. But I think that 
there was a lot of shame. Like I, I have felt a lot of shame about being ill, you know, and and also I'm stupidly ambitious. I mean, I do find myself at a bit of point in my life right now where I don't know what on earth I'm doing, but until that point, I was unbelievably ambitious and wanted to achieve things. And, you know, I wanted to have an exciting, interesting life and I wanted to change things as well. I genuinely wanted to, you know, music was sort of my real wheelhouse and I wanted to make things better in lots of ways. I wanted to make magazines that were better than other magazines and, you know, kind of have people talk about the magazines that I was at the helm of being innovative and original and unique and had different kinds of voices in them. All those things really mattered to me and almost like sort of mental illness was like, a, you know, just a hindrance really, you know, it was almost like, well, if people find out that I'm ill, then I won't be able to do these things, you know, so I have to hide that I am ill. But of course, the more you do that, the more it sort of starts, the harder it is to do, you know, so. Mm, yeah. How did you um, get to a point, James, where you kind of, where that changed, right? Because where, you know, you have to get to a point where you admit that you're ill so you can start to get help with being ill. And, you, you know, you've talked about therapy and stuff like that, this understanding of your OCD that you've got. How did you kind of start to, how did you go from hiding it to not hiding it anymore? Well, I mean, I would like to say that it was thought about, you know, that it was like sort of controlled disclosure, but it wasn't really. It was, uh, I just couldn't keep it in my head anymore. You know, I just, and I guess that kind of when I got to Kerrang and I got the editor's job and that was so, such a big deal for me that it was almost like, suppose I felt slightly empowered you know it was almost like it was almost like I have battled on you know unspeakable mental torment and here I am in this job that that's a aren't I a shining inspiration for other confused music obsessed teenagers who might think that their life is going to be hindered by the problems that they have inside their own skull you know, there's probably a little bit of arrogance about it, really. I mean, I'm putting the word arrogance in there. I don't think it was arrogance, really. Mm. I think it, it was very well-intentioned. But it was also just I just don't, didn't think I could keep it in my head, you know. But also, I mean, I didn't... I guess the rough timeline of me is that, you know, I have my first strange OCD thought probably when I'm 14. It doesn't really become a problem until I'm 19. I sort of took up, I sort of have a couple of years from being 19 where I really struggled, but I actually kind of managed to stay on course, kind of finished my degree, blah, blah, blah. And then when I'm like 28 and I'm an enemy and I'm really kind of like living the, living the life, you know, it, it, it got really bad again. And that's when I got a diagnosis and I didn't do anything about it because I couldn't I don't know what it was I don't, I don't know whether that was arrogance of whether I uh, you know whether I just didn't respect the doctors enough or I just wasn't clever enough to understand that when they were saying I was OCD I, I had OCD I, I didn't I couldn't you know I, I had physical compulsions but so much of it was like internal I guess you would call it like puro now right although again people think puro is a again is is a misunderstood term and i don't really like talking about myself in that way because i think that ocd is ocd whether it's like whether the compulsions are internal or external i think that it's all the same 
you know, broken cognitive function. Mm. Um, and then when I was like 37, I mean, I just, I just couldn't hide it anymore. When I was 37, I was just ill. I was, you know, trying to do myself in every, <laughs> you know, every, every week. It, it felt like it was, it was bad. I mean, it was, I'm sure I could have gone, I'm sure I could have gone further towards the bottom, but I'm, I wouldn't like to, you know, it was, it was bad. It was, and I guess sort of since then it's been sort of trying to come back from that really. And I feel mm. like, you know, it's, it's such a sort of difficult, not just for me, but for everyone pandemic and et cetera, et cetera. I think it's been such a difficult kind of half decade that there's been a few kind of stops and starts, you know, but why am I telling you all of that? I guess you were saying about sort of being transparent about it. So I guess just like, Probably when I was about 31 and I took that job, I was like, I can't keep this in my head anymore. Maybe if I'm honest about it, maybe people might try to understand some of the things I find I, I find difficult. But I also didn't understand enough about it myself. I, I, I talked about it as anxiety for a long time. You know, I was just like, oh, I've got really bad anxiety. I mean, everyone has anxiety, right? I mean, I know that when people talk about anxiety, it's a different kind of anxiety, mm. but it's a confusing term. I remember speaking to a boss once and being like, I've got some real problems with anxiety and them saying, well, you're a very anxious person and I'm not dissing them for that, but it kind of wasn't really what I needed to hear. I mm. sort of needed them to go, well, what do you mean by that? But also the part of the problem with OCD is that, you know, it really, it plays into our biggest fears, right? They call the thoughts, uh, ego dystonic. And the idea is, is that they're, they're sort of opposed to your values, right? So if you're like a very moral person and you think this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong, those things that you think are wrong are the things that the thoughts will target, you know? Like, mm. it's no kind of, uh, you know, it's no surprise to me, for example, that one of one of my best friends who has OCD and has is, an, is a new mother, like all of her thoughts, her fears are about her hurting her child. Yeah, and 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 it's like that's a hard thing to get across to someone, because why would you know why why would anyone want to hurt their child? But the whole point is she doesn't want to hurt a child, right? Because she adores her child. But yeah. OCD has picked that as the thing to torment her with, you know. Because I I guess and again this is you know I, I might I might fudge this this might this might not be what would be in the NHS paraphernalia, but I think that OCD is about trying to protect yourself from the things that you love, but you're getting it wrong. Mm. You know, it's it's a sort of like a, a broken safety response. And I say this to say that, you know, when I was having these problems and kind of being tr transparent about them, I also didn't feel like I could be completely transparent about them. You know, I didn't feel like I could you know, go to a boss or an HR department or even, you know, girlfriends or friends or whatever, whatever, and say, I'm having this thought because, you know, they were frightening statements if you didn't understand the process of it. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much so. That's kind of the, that's one of the scary things that kind of comes across when I speak to people who do have OCD is like, how do you ask for help when the thing that you have to ask for help with is this thing that no one wants to say or no one wants to talk about, you know, it's like it, <laughs> yes. it adds an extra layer of um, 
of awfulness to the whole thing, right? Yeah, I mean, when I went to my OCD support group, which I found, I mean, that was a big turning point for me. I found that when I was 38. And, you know, it took me half an hour to get through the door. And But when I did get through the door, you know, because I, I was almost like, you know, I just didn't want to be a mentally ill person, right? So I was like, well, if I go in here, this is what I am now. But I got in there and it probably took, it probably took like five seconds before I heard someone verbalise an obsessive fear that they had had out loud in front of people. And I was just like, well, I should have always been here. You know, this is, you know, I'm not broken. I'm just, this is how there are people who suffer with this. This is like, it's not normal, but like, it's normal. You know, this is like, this isn't a reflection of my character. This is other people have this. So, I mean, I just think that's a very empowering thing. You know, I can, I can understand why. I can understand in lots of ways why people are drawn towards like mental health content in a way because everyone wants to feel like a connection and be seen. You know, and that's what my support group was for me. Mm. I'm glad you brought that up actually because it was on my list of things to ask you about because like you know I know you tweeted about it and stuff and it does just seem like such a wonderful thing, and you know there's lots of sort of groups that we hear of that are you know nationwide and doing wonderful things and they're like men specific and stuff like that but you don't hear so much about the like ocd specific groups and stuff like that how did you find out about this this group uh my wife found out about it because we were kind of at our wits end you know i mean when i got in from that group i obviously as i said i had a very sort of profound reaction to it but uh, when I got home and I saw her, she burst into tears and the, she said, I don't feel like we're on our own now. Mm. So it was, you know, I kind of, that's the other thing as well is I'm, I'm always very, I'm always very conscious to sort of talk about partners in a sense, you know, like it's, I think, I'm sure it's the same with other, other illnesses, but like with OCD, like I think it can be so, it can be, you know, it can be painful for people who love people with OCD. You know, like they they almost go through it themselves. And um, but yeah, she found it, and I felt like I had to try anything at that point because it was having such a detrimental impact on our life. And yeah, it's a funny group. My it's a funny group. My OCD support group. It's it's I, I sort of feel like you know I've been going for about five years now, and I feel like I. I've sort of seen some ups and downs, you know, it's in a bit, I went last night, actually, it's in a bit of a weird place at the moment. Uh, the pandemic changed a lot because we went online during the pandemic and now we're doing in-person in sessions and online, but it's not as, it's not as, uh, attendances are down a little bit from, you know, where we were before the, the pandemic. And that could be good. That could be just loads of people that have OCD anymore and they don't need it. That's brilliant. But there were certain points, especially during the pandemic when it was online, where there was just like 60, 70 people turning up every week because obviously wow. people were having such terrible, such a terrible time. Um, but there is something, I guess, there's some, I mean, I, I really met one of the, you know, I, I have a best friend that I met through group. That was sort of life-changing for me, really. And I guess I just don't, don't think anyone understands ill people like ill people, you know, like... Obviously, there's a place for proper treatment, right? But I was 
all over. I was just, I had no course. I had no set course before I went there. You know, I didn't know what kind of therapy I should be having. You know, I, I just thought that endlessly talking about my problems probably wasn't actually fixing anything. It was just talking endlessly about my problems and going into my support group and being like, I'm doing this therapy, but I don't think it's the right therapy. What is the right therapy? And they told me and they were right. And I had been doing the wrong kind of therapy because I think that, you know, it's not one size fits all. And I said to them, you know, what's who's the psychologist that I should be? Who's the best psychologist? And they talked about a guy and they all, it was like a sort of a, I am Spartacus kind of scene with everyone being like, he's amazing. They're amazing. He's amazing. And, uh, yeah, you know, and so it just set me on course really, you know, what book should I be reading? He should be reading this book. And it's just such an interesting thing for me as well. You know, like, you know, I sort of alluded before to just sort of how cruel people can be and how, in lots of ways, I mean, I'm from South Yorkshire, I would say this, you know, fuck Thatcher and all that, but sort of how communities got sort of disassembled. But actually the fact that there is this room where kind of every two weeks people meet and, you know, it's not attendance isn't compulsory, but I think it's really important to go when you're okay because the idea is that someone will not be okay. So you can help that person and then when you're not okay they'll be there for you and it's like you support each other i think that's kind of a, an amazing thing actually even the more cynical i get i just go wow that's really people at their best you know yeah that's a really beautiful thing and that's a really beautiful way of putting you know we talked before about social media now we're not supposed to be connected to that many people but you are supposed to be deeply connected to a small group of people that's kind of the design right and um yeah it's a really really lovely thing and you know i'm very conscious of your, your time mate and i'm gonna let you go but i did want to just purely because you mentioned it but you mentioned um your your wife before and the effect of um mental illness on partners and you know that's something that's really important for me i always think to talk about because yeah you know we go through it and they go through it with us and they're like yeah i'm i'm married and i um put my wife for a lot i'm still amazed sometimes that you know that she's that she's stuck around you know and um it's still not always easy for her now as well you know so um but it is that we we go through it and they go through it too right it's a it's it's very hard i mean it's she might just be really into your podcast that Maybe. might be that might be the reason why she sticks around so she can hear the podcast before anyone else yeah uh, it, it might be she doesn't listen to any she says she hears enough of my voice and she doesn't need to hear any more so um i could say anything i want about her she'd have no idea um, yeah, I think my wife would like me to stop talking about her so much on the podcast. <laughs> that's, that's just like a feel. That's, that's, that's more of a feel than a, a direct um, a direct re request. No, I, I just think that, like, I mean, she... Sorry for waffling on. I'll, I'll, I'll shut up. I'll bugger off after this. But I guess that, like, I... When I met her, she wanted to understand, you know, it... And I think that that was probably one of the kindest things that anyone's ever done for me, really. You know, it was like, it was like, wow, that's amazing. And it was almost sort of like a, it was a sort of like an early commitment to, I think, what the two was new, which is that this relationship was special and could go somewhere, you know, and for it to go somewhere that it would help if she understood it. And she, in lots of ways, she's kind of educated me, you know on sort of how it all kind of works, you know? And I just hope that, I don't hope this at all, but I hope that 
you know, if she, if it, I, ho- I hope if she was going through it, that I then I that I would be as good a person as she is to support her through it. You know, but yeah, yeah. I think it's yeah. I think it's important. It's a thing sometimes. I think I just think it's important to think outside yourself as well. You know, there's a lot that I've kind of learned with CBT of like when my head is going to a place, you know, and it's going into a um, rumination, which is one of my sort of biggest problems. To, my wife can drag me out of it. Like she's not dragging me out of it, but the thought of her and the kind of husband that I want to be and the kind of friend to her I want to be can consent to me, you know, because I think that a lot of it's kind of about trying to get out of your head, you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And kind of, I suppose, yeah, it makes it worth it, doesn't it? It makes it work. We don't always, when we're, you know, a lot of people who are ill, self-worth's a real problem. But when you've got to do it, you might not, I might not want to do it for me, but I would certainly do it for, for Kim, you know, that's kind of, um, yeah. Yeah, that's how yeah I think it's also, just, I think it's also just that thing though, It's it's that thing of, yeah, yeah. I, th- I, th- I think we're saying the kind of same thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's a thing of like um, quite often when I'm in sort of that cycle of OCD of like tapping or rumination or whatever, actually trying to get my head to no, you you have a duty to this person, you know, like you you want her life to be good, you know, you want her to be, you know, safe and. And actually, sometimes that can thinking about her as opposed to thinking about me. I, I think that can be helpful. But mm, yeah, no, beautifully put, mate. Yeah. Anyway, That's thanks the- for having a chat. I'm sorry it took so long to uh, sort this out. Oh, mate, no worries at all, mate. I appreciate your um, I appreciate your time, and um, yeah, I'm a you know a big fan of a lot of the things that you do. I think you know that, mate. So it's lovely nice. to um, lovely to chat. It's always a bit surreal. I've probably listened to um, well over a hundred hours of your podcast and stuff. So to have you, I'm oh, used mate. to having you in my in my headphones. So um, <laughs> yeah, it felt I like have... a bit like I was chatting to a mate, to be honest. Well, I have to say, I haven't. No one's sort of had a. I haven't been on this side of the microphone for a while. So it was actually quite weird, like because there was loads of times I just wanted to ask you stuff, and then I was a bit like, "No, I'm gonna, I love my moment in this sun." <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But maybe, maybe we can continue that on uh, on private message at some point. But, oh, mate, yeah, I'd love to, you, I'd love to. But yeah, no, thank you for your time, and um, I wish you all the best, man. You take it easy. Huh? Thanks, man. All right, see you, dude. Bye. No, no, no. Bye. A big up to the proper mental podcast. A proper mental podcast. <laughs>